and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security experts. I normally say practitioners, but it just came out. Who will introduce themselves. And today's icebreaker question is about the ability now to make a duplicate of a key from a photo. And when you're presented with this new possibility, Take us through your thinking path of the potential security risks you might be faced with. Or maybe you don't see this as a risk and you would just go out and buy a balloon to celebrate. Yeah, I'm Rob. Rookie podcaster. Sober <laughs> is joining us. Rookie podcaster. First, I think we need to acknowledge that it's understandable you choked trying to call us security experts because uh, I have trouble believing that too. I think we're all like still struggling. There's so much stuff to learn. But I I don't know. I Keys are a weird... Thing. Like everyone has them, but they really aren't that secure to begin with that there's, you know, widely available tools on the Internet that you can uh, purchase that will let you just like at a walking pace go through almost any locked door. So I don't know if this really actually changes things or just like our perception of them. This is Kellyan. The first thing I thought of when I read this was maybe it was a couple months ago or a year ago, the super secret you know, nobody can see me I'm doing air quotes, TSA approved locks that you get with some luggage now that lets the TSA open it, but it's supposed to be secure with the master keys. Um, they took a photo of that and it got on the internet very briefly. And, uh, and there was a big hullabaloo because now somebody could re- reproduce those, you know, supposedly private and secure TSA only keys to get into the, the locked baggage that you check at an airport. So I think the concept is neat, but, you know, and I can see the applications to help people like, hey, can you feed my dog? I'll just send you an e-key and go print it out. But I think the security risks are, I don't know if the benefit is worth the the trade-off. It's hard for me to think people are going to go around like taking pictures of other people's keys and then going to break into their house when they could just walk up to it. But to me, what's more interesting is the perception of these things, that we perceive these things to be safe and that, that this is just a different way of showing us what was already there in the first place. To start this uh, this episode off, uh, completely off the wrong foot too, I agree with you, Mike. Um, locks are kind of, in some ways, maybe not security theater, but definitely not as secure as we all think they are. So as always, our housekeeping announcement is if you're a regular listener and enjoy your show, please go to iTunes to rate and review the Inside Out Security Show and we'll put you in the running for a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. So for today's show, I want to talk about The Verge. They published a really great piece about two-factor authentication and how Finally, every important service, except for Netflix, gets that two-factor is an important security feature, and they're finally offering it, but gosh darn it, it's no longer the go-to one-stop security fix, and that really good attackers, they'll find a way to bypass it. So for instance, there are researchers that described a potential bypass as a password reset man-in-the-middle attack. And so what happens is they get you to sign up for a free shiny thing, like a personality test. And then in the sign up process, they ask you for an email, which then they use that to trigger a password reset. And then the security questions that's asked when you sign up for their fake free thing are the same questions you, you would be asked in your email security questions. And then they're able to intercept your PIN uh, with your email provider. 
And then that's where your two-factor won't work to save you either. And I think it was alluded that maybe we should add another layer of security. And I like the response from a guy named Mark Risher, who manages Google's identity systems. He said, one of the truths we found is that people won't accept more security than they think they'll need. And how worried should people be that there are security workarounds to two-factor? And what should we be concerned with most? There, there's no silver bullet to this stuff. There's no 100% thing like, you know, hey, we did this and now everything's secure. So this is just one more step. In general, I think two-factor is still an improvement that it makes things more complicated, makes it take more time, and makes it, you know, more difficult to take over accounts. And all those things, I think it's still an improvement. So uh, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us with this. But, and if you ask what's really important, I think there needs to be more of a thought of uh, account recovery after you, you find out you've been breached or better ways to deal with this. And just, I think, almost a plan for two-factor to be bypassed and there's a need to sort things out and pick up the pieces. This is Rob. I think that two-factor is still a momentous step forward. You know, on, on Twitter all the time, I see people scoffing if they come across a service that only allows SMS for the second factor. And, you know, some researchers will chime in and say, well, we all know that SMS is, is one of the weaker second factors and, you know, everyone's up in arms. But when it comes down to it, just having that is a, is a huge step above a password-only thing where you know people reuse passwords, you know there's password dumps out there that match up to email addresses and people can hackers can just basically use those to um, test against other services. So in the grand scheme of things, I think a uh, huge uh, benefit. I think that Mike and Rob are both correct. I think having some form of two-factor definitely raises the bar a little bit, but I don't think necessarily we can stop. It's not a checkbox solution like, yes, we have this. Great. We're going to move on and forget about it. It's it's definitely a benefit that a lot of uh, places are implementing it, but there still has to be some thought behind it and you know, maybe an evolution in the future as, as technology progresses, as more attacks and ways to bypass this progress. We can't just forget about it until it's a giant problem again. I think we're all agreed on two-factor, but I think we should also agree that when three-factor authentication hits, it's going to solve all these issues, that we won't have any of these problems anymore. Everything's going to be perfectly secure. We're going to have a revolution. People are going to protest. <laughs> I saw a pretty cool thing when I was in Brazil at a security conference, and uh, there was a guy on stage talking about some technology that uh, his company was developing. And it was for uh, kind of behavioral analytics on a mobile device where it can tell based on like the angle you're holding the device, the way you're swiping on the screen, typing on the keyboard, different things that indicated that it wasn't you using your own mobile phone. And I thought that was pretty cool. And that's kind of like another kind of fail safe if, if your password is compromised or your device is compromised or whatever it is you're using to kind of get behavioral cues from the device or from the different actions on a keyboard or whatever to tell that it's been compromised. All I can think is like Andy Serkis is going to become the world's greatest hacker because he can imitate anybody or anything. So he's just going to like imitate, you know, Rob's, you know, positioning of his phone and just like get right into his contacts. So. I think we just solved a, a mystery too. Now, Mike, we know who is getting that plastic surgery in Brazil uh, under <laughs> your name. My, from my attempts. It was Andy Serkis. He's trying to look like me. He's going to act like me. So. 
Another core security principle that's been around a long time, like two-factor, is HTTPS. To do that to your site, and by now you'll see the "not secure" on your browser or an alert that says that your site isn't secure. And our friend Troy Hunt he wrote a post about how that's being enforced more and more, and it is the norm to have that protection for your site. And the purpose is that the browser can't tell if the text field you're entering contains sensitive data. What else do you think is a key takeaway? When you think of like security software, I, you think of like firewalls, you know, like antivirus, the behavioral security stuff that you know we work on, uh, permissions, and all these things. I think a lot of times what you don't think of is the browser and the the user, the UX, and the UI of how it presents information back to everyone who's browsing web pages and just what a huge security responsibility that is and a huge opportunity to better educate people and show them like, oh, this site is doing something good. This site is, you know, trying to treat your data with more respect. All of this really underlines that to me, that it's almost not so much about like the protocols as it is how those are presented to, to people that really moves the needle on this stuff. Educating users via the interfaces that we use, we have to get better in that regard. And this is one step that a lot of the browsers are taking to really make it very explicit when they might be in jeopardy. Because as it as it exists today, like think about just like Gmail or Hotmail or any of these mail clients that everybody uses, they're not really helping you <laughs> in terms of defending yourself against phishing and other attacks. And Troy actually did a, a video course called Internet Security Basics. You can search for it on YouTube and find it. And it's something that you could give to somebody like uh, your grandma or grandfather, someone who's who's not using technology every day, but uses it and help them really understand like what are the key indicators of someone trying to take advantage of you online or a risk on the web. I think in some ways it's a little bit heavy handed, but I, I appreciate the fact that we're starting to see these warnings in different places and, and things that you wouldn't necessarily consider. You know, you look, I think we've trained people maybe to look for the little uh, lock in the browser to see if it's secure, but seeing it in the form fields is a great way just to highlight some of that. As Cindy mentioned, it's you don't necessarily think about it, you don't think about what data is going in, then the browser has no way. And I think it also forces, in some ways, organizations or web designers to consider that as well, too. It just made me think of um, an order I placed for something the one time online, and you know, it had the lock and the secure thing, you know, and it was supposed to be over HTTPS. So you just kind of assume that it was. But the kicker of it is, as soon as I signed up for it to to place my order, it sent me an email confirming my username and password in clear text that I, I supplied. So that kind of made me question the entire process that had gone through. You know, what are they doing with it and this data? Are they really considering this from a security perspective? Right before the show, Mike found a top-level domain DNS configuration vulnerability and wanted to share with everyone. What was it about, Mike? So to be clear, I didn't actually find this. Some some other security researcher found this. But No, you found the article. I found the article, which let me tell you, it was rough. I had to dig through a lot of the internet to find this, and I think it it's something we should talk about. And I think we should talk about it because it highlights to me these very deep vulnerabilities that we we don't consider. And so what this is is that this researcher Matthew Bryant found that the top-level domain, uh, so the top-level domains are like .com, .org, all the country domains, and this is one of those. That's for .io. He was able to register his own top-level domain 
name server and get real traffic that people were putting in trying to resolve domains on that. So if you had uh, a domain on there like michaelbuckby.io, when it was being resolved, it would hit his rogue DNS server that he had set up. And there's a lot of nuance to this as far as like how much traffic he actually got and things. But to me, this is terrifying. This is terrifying because that means he really could have taken over a significant portion of the traffic of any website that was a .io website on the internet. And he was, you know, responsible person. He turned it off. He tried to send a message to the abuse uh, admin emails uh, for the registrar who was handling the .io TLD. It erred, but somehow they still got the message. And, you know, after 24 hours, this, you know, it was resolved. But in the meantime, to me, that's just terrifying because... You know, we're talking about like, well, all websites have SSL now and there's some like stapling and stuff you can do with those certs and the path for them. But, oh, my gosh, this person really could have hijacked like any .io website and put his own server up, his own malignant server, (laughs) serving malware or anything. And just utterly terrifying to me that that this was even a possibility. Well, it was terrifying. It it connected with the uh, session I found when I was searching for uh, black hat uh, sessions to attend in a couple of weeks. And it talked about how lawyers and clients, they get attorney client privilege and how much sensitive data a security pro is responsible for. And the kind of privilege they have is really just the title of being a white hat, kind of like the gentleman that found the vulnerability and how he was responsible. And I highly doubt that the Singapore government read the same session briefing as I did. But do you think it makes good security sense to have pros get a license? So this is an interesting one, and I can see parallels to it. For example, I know that in in certain states at least, in order to perform forensics investigations and be able to admit them in like a court of law, for example, certain people had to go through a certification process to become like a private, like a legally licensed private eye or private investigator to be able to to perform this. Um, and I never considered that before, you know, working in the infosec uh, world, that it in some ways it's kind of parallel to performing that type of investigation where, you know, you can't just become, I mean, I guess you could try, you know, an unlicensed private eye, but to be able to officially do anything about it and have protection under the law, you do need to be registered. And that um, had come up in this case. Uh, I don't know the backstory to it, why they discovered it, but it is an interesting parallel. To me, it depends on how this is used. If this is something that offers some legal protection to people operating in this space, I think there's right now still a great deal of concern over reporting vulnerabilities for fear of there being some legal repercussions. We've seen lots of weird things in that area. So if this is something that helps promote uh, and protect uh, security researchers, I-, I think it's great. Whether or not that's actually the case, I I have a hard time figuring out from this <laughs> um, in that I'm not an expert on Singapore law anymore. I've left that life behind to forge a new path. But uh, I, it's it's really interesting to me, and I wonder if this is going to, you know, come up in the U.S. and other Western countries. In some ways, we already see um, maybe not quite so much anymore, but for a while there was quite a chilling of security research, especially with lawsuits under like the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, where the way it's kind of uh, written in there is that 
if you bypass any security controls, you can be litigated uh, under that. And for quite a while, there were a number of, of lawsuits brought against security researchers because organizations didn't want their faults exposed. And I so much lately, I haven't heard about it, but for quite a while, that was a, a pretty big problem, I feel like, in the security uh, research world. So for this show, we've been talking a lot about theory and what's to come and two-factor and making sure that people don't get access to your web contents and that sensitive sensitive content you input on a site that it'll be protected. We've been talking about ransomware for a long time, but more recently, we're hearing about attackers threatened to embarrass us with our own data. And there were two Android apps that contained malware that threatened to send the victim's private information and web history to all of their contacts. And so I have a two-part question. What do you think is worse, like having them encrypt your data or sharing all your secrets with your contacts? And then my follow-up question is, do you think it's the user's fault for giving the app so much of their permissions to access their personal data? That's a good question, Cindy. I think I've written on this topic before. Because, you know, Back in 2016, we saw a little bit of this. And I wrote about sort of the rise of extortionware as sort of a companion to ransomware. Because if you think about it, ransomware has a key advantage in that it can mostly encrypt data in place. It doesn't have to worry about getting data out of the environment, right? So it's not going to trip a lot of the alarms that organizations have for exfiltration, which uh, extortion would, right? Because they have to be able to package up the information and get it on their own server so that they can threaten to leak it. And I really think that that's going to become more and more common because a backup isn't going to save you from somebody spilling your secrets. Like you can back up your data if they encrypted it and restore it and you'll be okay. But you can't, you're the best restores in the world are not going to save you from somebody spilling your secrets onto uh, WikiLeaks or whatever. So I think we're going to see more and more of it. It's harder to do, but there's nothing preventing a, a malware author from trying to do both, right? Encrypt all the data. And at, le- at the very least, you've got a situation where a person can't access their data and might need to pay a ransom, and then also ship it out if you can. If you get caught shipping the data out, then at least you've, you've caused some damage already. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that. And then as far as whether it's the user's fault, I think in some of the cases, no, because the actual app was compromised. In which case, like who knows what kind of prompts they even receive, right? In, in many cases, apps will ask for access to your contact, your calendar, to whatever they can get. And people will just blindly say, yes, you can, you can have it. I want, I want to use the app. But in other cases, I worry that they weren't prompted, right? That something in the compromised app circumvented those like, sort of uh, user prompts. And so it's hard to say, carte blanche, whether people are responsible for this or not. Can we talk about the real crime here, which is that these uh, malware authors who are like extorting people for all this stuff, they misspelled the word proceed on their call to action button that they put in the ransomware. It has two C's in it, P-R-O-C-C-E-E-D. What is this? I, I really feel like if they should have more respect uh, for this whole you know, situation. Apparently, they aren't getting enough uh, money. So I, I feel like they should really up their game. I, I think the permission stuff, I feel like you can't almost ever blame the user for these things where you know, this stuff is just so complicated and so weird And even, you know, security professionals get caught up in these things that I really feel it needs to be on the the network providers and the the people and organizations administering these ecosystems that try to deal with this stuff. 
What's going on in Mike's corner? Just going to suggest the SSL Labs Qualsys tool because we were talking about uh, HTTPS. So it's not a tool, it's a service. Um, and it's really great. It goes through all the different aspects of SSL and setting it up in really great detail because a lot of the things that Troy talks about, there's you know nuances to setting it up in, in the best way and things. Also, I want to mention that I don't think Killian could talk about this last uh, ransomware because all of his digital data is being held hostage. So he's he's declining to comment under duress. So <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Mike Buffy, Killian Engler, Rob Sobers, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Bye. Thanks.